This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, November 18th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's what you need to know today. Flooding causes a food crisis for millions of Africans. Plus, American credit card debt soars. But first, Nancy Pelosi's legacy. That's today's one big thing. I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from the floor of Congress yesterday, in her announcement, she'll be stepping away from leadership. Here to break down what that means for the future of the Democratic Party is Axios's managing editor for politics, Margaret Tollif. Hi, Margaret. Well, hi, Nyla. Before we get to the future, Margaret, I feel like we have to acknowledge the historic nature of Nancy Pelosi's time as speaker. What stands out to you from her two decades leading the Democrats in the House? What do you think her leadership legacy will be? Nancy Pelosi will obviously be remembered for her distinction as the first female speaker of the House of Representatives. But legislatively, she's also likely to be remembered for playing a crucial role in the passage of what became known as Obamacare, broadening of protections, expansion of health care rights and coverage for Americans. And the other thing I think she'll be remembered for, at least taking a snapshot in time now as we are living through this moment in history, is the role she played as a check against Donald Trump. And if a picture says a thousand words, everybody knows what picture I'm about to tell you about, that picture of Nancy Pelosi in the royal blue dress in a room full of men at the White House, standing up and wagging her finger at President Trump. Can you tell us who she's paved the way for now? Although she's stepping away, she's not really relinquishing the reins. She wanted to engineer her successors. This wasn't just about her getting out of the way for someone else who was 82 or 83 or, you know, 81, but her trying to usher in a generation of leaders now in their 50s and their 40s, Gen X, uh, Gen Y, millennials. Now there are really three younger Democrats that are on the rise that she is paving the way for. There is Hakeem Jeffries from New York. He's an African-American congressman. There's Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, and there's Pete Aguilar from California. Of course, the Democratic Party is now going to be entering the minority beginning in January after Republicans sort of squeaky win back of the majority in the midterms. So these new leaders, if in fact they do ascend, would ascend in the minority. But it would pave the way for the first African-American Speaker of the House if Democrats were to regain the majority. And that combination of a black man, a white woman, a Hispanic man would create that sort of diverse team that Nancy Pelosi wants the Democratic Party to put forward for the future. What does this mean for the future of the Democratic Party overall? So it's one thing to say, what does it mean for the future of the Democratic Party? I think there's a bigger question here, which is what does it mean for the future of American politics at the top of every layer of American leadership, with the exception of Kevin McCarthy in the House Republican structure? But Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, these are people around the age of 80 now leading all 
aspects of American legislative and executive power. And for years, you see in the polls, Americans saying, we want the next generation to rise up in leadership. The people in charge are getting too old, and they're getting older. So the question is, will this be the beginning of a bigger movement that's been bubbling beneath the surface for some time? I think we don't know the answer to that, but I'm certainly interested in the answer to that. Margaret Tollov is Axios' managing editor for politics. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Nyla. In a moment, floods, hunger, and COP27. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Scientists have long understood the link between climate change and severe flooding, but now they're also understanding the link between those natural disasters and hunger. A recent study in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that flood events in many African countries have affected food security for more than five and a half million people. Axios climate justice reporter Ayurella Horn-Muller has more Can you explain how this study understands the link between flooding and particularly food insecurity? So this study looked at flood events experienced in more than a dozen African nations between 2009 and 2020. And it looked at how the flood events impacted food security for existing food insecure populations across West, East, and South Africa, parts of South Sudan, Malawi, and Nigeria. I think what would help most is is first just defining food security. So we define that roughly by three pillars. The first is availability or having enough food. The second is access. And then the third piece is utilization. And that aligns with things like clean water access, fuel to cook food, storage, food reserves, all of these other things that we tend to take for granted. So my sources tell me that they are definitely concerned about the impacts of climate change on the availability of food or crop production in these regions. Rising temperatures, extreme precipitation events, and then this just very high variability of water resources, it all comes into play here as well. And we're seeing this play out in real time, right? We know that climate change is contributing to an increase in heavier rainfall and has been linked to more intense flood events. We just recently saw that outside of Africa with the climate-fueled catastrophic levels of flooding in Pakistan. We also know that food insecurity is, is a critical growing issue for many developing nations across the African continent. Millions of people are in hunger hotspots in countries in the Horn of Africa, which is facing its worst famine in decades. And at least 40 million people in West and Central Africa were considered food insecure before torrential flooding hit the region last month, which submerged farmland and destroyed harvests. How much of this was a discussion at COP27 this week? This is a main talking point at COP27. This is a very divisive talking point where developing nations have been calling for loss and damage financing from the wealthier countries that are responsible for 
the bulk of global emissions that are driving these damaging climate impacts. I mentioned Pakistan. It's a pivotal example. The devastating flooding there that started in July it caused an estimated $40 billion in damage. And now we're midway through the second and final week of COP. Negotiations are underway. My sources on the ground are telling me that the likely outcome of the summit will be very disappointing for many of the developing highly vulnerable countries that had high hopes for this summit. And in fact, developed countries are being accused of trying to stall progress on climate damage financing, which my colleague Andrew Friedman reported on on Wednesday. And highly vulnerable countries came into the summit with high hopes on loss and damage, but it's just not looking like developed countries are meeting them where they're at. Ayurella Horn-Muller writes about climate and energy for Axios. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Before we go, credit card balances are up. In fact, Fed researchers are reporting the biggest spike in credit card debt in more than 20 years. So why so much spending? Axios's Hope King has some theories. Credit card balances grew by 15% in the third quarter compared to last year. That's the biggest annual jump in over 20 years. It shows just how much of an impact inflation has had on our economy on top of all the pent-up demand that began to be unleashed by consumers this year. With spending incredibly depressed during the pandemic, the bigger picture that I see, with all of this spending now going toward services, going toward events, we're seeing more of these patterns going back to pre-pandemic levels. And spending on credit cards is now yet another sign that we're getting there. Axios's Hope King. That's all for this week. Axios Today is produced by Fonda Mwangi, Robin Lin, Amy Padula, and Liddy McMullen-Laird. Our sound engineers are Alex Sugiyara and Ben O'Brien. Alexandra Boti is our supervising producer. Sarah K. Lanigu is Axios's editor-in-chief. And special thanks, as always, to Axios co-founder, Mike Allen. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Stay safe, enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday.